Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm happy to forecast a strong year ahead for Airlines Confidential. Airlines have been reporting their 2022 financial results this week, and most have been forecasting a strong year ahead with continued robust demand for air travel. There's one big exception, though, and we'll get into that. Scott McCartney, are you expected to have a strong year ahead? Hello, Ben, and yes, very much. I can, I can forecast that demand for barbecue and tequila remains strong at least through the next two quarters in the McCartney household. <laughs> but I'm glad we will have a very smart lawyer as our guest this week. He can help us forecast some of the challenges ahead for aviation. That's right, Scott. Mark Dombroff, who is not only one of the foremost aviation lawyers in the world, but also a magician, will be our guest today. And we'll ask him if there are connections between aviation and magic, besides just pulling profits out of a hat last year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Ben, speaking of pulling profits out of a hat, let's start with Americans' 2022 results reported this past week. Those results included record fourth quarter revenue, almost 17% ahead of pre-pandemic 2019. It was a profitable year, and American even prepaid more than a billion dollars in debt. Like United and Delta, American expects demand for tickets to remain high this year. And as you've discussed before, airline capacity will be constrained by aircraft and labor shortages. So fares should stay high. But as we know, costs are going up too. Alaska and JetBlue had profitable fourth quarters as well. Alaska was profitable for the year, but JetBlue had a $362 million loss for all of 2022. And that's big compared to other airlines. Still, both seem to be saying, we don't see any recession in the air. The big earnings downer, of course, was Southwest. That's largely a result of the Christmas meltdown. Southwest had a $220 million loss in the fourth quarter. The meltdown resulted in about an $800 million pre-tax whammy, Southwest said. And interestingly, Saturday Night Live made fun of the $800 million pre-tax whammy and the pain that Southwest caused over the weekend as well. Southwest said the pain is not over. It expects to lose money in the first quarter. That's not necessarily unusual for an airline, but Southwest said it is seeing ticket buying slow down for January and February and it thinks that's lingering impact of the major mess it had. At least some travelers are avoiding Southwest to make sure the airline gets back on track. Ben, what did you take away from airline earnings week? Do you think the economic slowdown that we're seeing in other industries will ultimately deflate some of those very rosy demand forecasts? The forecasts are rosy, Scott, and that rosiness is somewhat justified, I actually think. It was good to see most airlines make money in the fourth quarter. Capacity was well aligned with strong demand in the fourth quarter, and fares were pretty high. So for on the quarterly basis, I think it suggests that the industry really is coming out of multiple years of really financial distress caused by the pandemic. As we go into 2023, everyone's talking about a bullish kind of year. Robust demand, understandable costs, capacity constraints are all reasons to believe that it could be. Now, 
other industries are talking recession or are talking economic slowdown. How might that affect airline travel? It certainly could, but Scott, I don't think it's going to affect the leisure travel as much as the business travel. And leisure travel is what's driving all of this demand robustness right now. Yes, business travelers are traveling again, up to about 80% of what they did pre-pandemic, and that's very important for the airlines that carry that travel. But when everybody's talking about robust demand, what they're really saying is that the leisure market is very strong. People are still booking vacations. People still want to travel. Lots of events are happening. So unless something really goes haywire in the economy, I think the outlook of a strong 2023 for the industry is more likely than not. Now, getting to the Southwest point you made, it's interesting that they're sort of attributing a slowdown in bookings right now to sort of reaction to their Christmas meltdown. That may be true, but I don't think that long term they're going to be hit by that. It's clear they're reacting to that, though. I get emails from Southwest just like you probably do and lots of our listeners do. And I've gotten more than the usual number of emails in the last two weeks reminding me of these great fares and these great deals and why don't I book now? So they clearly have the promotion engine running to try to reverse that ticket buying slowdown impact they're seeing. But I think even they will end up having a very good summer 2023. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And and it was interesting with Southwest that they they called out January and February for reduced bookings, um, but but said March was was on track. And that's interesting is here we are in early February now. Uh, and, um, you know, the the hit may be short term. I, th- I think it's fascinating for the industry. We we saw a whole lot of uh, layoff notices go out and and furlough announcements from major companies. Um, and usually when that starts happening, you'll see ticket buying really slow down. Um, people get nervous about their jobs. Uh, their neighbor gets uh, loses a job and, and they think, you know what, maybe we better not take that vacation. Uh, maybe we better stay closer to home. Um, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Now, it may be that the, the labor market in general is so strong that those people are pretty confident they're going to get new jobs, and let's hope they do. But I think that there may be a bigger change here in that what we've seen is the resiliency of air travel, the importance of air travel in people's lives, and that, that leisure demand that you talked about. You know, people will give up other things now other purchases. We've seen retail slowdowns and and all of that. Um, Maybe they don't go out to eat as much, but they are going to take that trip. Uh, And I think that's a fascinating development for the airline industry. That said, one other cautionary economic note, Skift reported that its U.S. traveler tracker now showed one third of Americans plan to cut back on travel spending this year. Now, you might say, wait, that means two-thirds aren't cutting back and are increasing spending, and that's exactly what we were talking about. But Skiff thought the one-third number was significant because in October, when it did the same survey, only one-quarter of people surveyed said they planned to reduce spending. So the reduced group is growing, and that may be a warning sign. And some other important news, this close to my home. Boeing was arraigned in federal court in Fort Worth, Texas, over the two 737 MAX crashes. It's unusual because Boeing settled with the government and paid a $2.5 billion fine, and in exchange, the company got immunity from criminal prosecution. A Boeing test pilot had gone on trial and was acquitted, but he was largely seen as just a scapegoat. I think the jury thought 
the wrong guy was on trial. Um, in most aviation accidents, immunity is considered important so that all facts come out and safety isn't compromised by hidden problems. But a dozen families of crash victims have pushed to get Boeing's immunity thrown out, contending in filings that Boeing's actions in creating and hiding safety flaws amounted to, quote, the deadliest corporate crime in U.S. aviation history, quote. So far, a federal judge has allowed the case to proceed, forcing Boeing to enter a not guilty plea at an arraignment. Even that is interesting since the government deal required Boeing to take responsibility for hiding issues with the MAX flight control system. This could ultimately mean senior Boeing executives will face criminal charges like other product liability cases where people made decisions that caused deaths. What do you think, Ben? Cost-cutting, a culture change away from engineering safety and redundancy, and a fear of losing sales to Airbus killed 346 people. That's been pretty well documented. Boeing purposely misled pilots and regulators. Should someone go to jail? It's fascinating the way you just laid all that out, Scott. And that's exactly what's happening here. I actually think it wouldn't be good if their immunity got thrown out by this Texas case. I understand why they want the immunity. I understand why some people are frustrated they have the immunity, but I think that was an important piece to getting the $2.5 billion settlement also. Clearly, something went majorly wrong at Boeing that caused these 346 deaths. And you're right. Is it cost-cutting, a culture change away from engineering safety, fear of losing sales to Airbus? It's all that. Whether or not that means criminal liability of the management team or the board of Boeing is a big leap, however, the FAA did approve this airplane, did say this airplane was airworthy to fly. So if Boeing people are going to go to jail, shouldn't someone or someone from the FAA also go to jail? Right? Boeing on their own couldn't put this plane in the air. So there's Boeing, there's regulators, there's the airlines that fly the plane that all do their own safety reviews and all make their own opinions. So I think there's a lot here. And I think for the Boeing executives to face criminal charges really does open up the floodgates to, well, who else sort of enabled all this to happen? I'm not at all a Boeing apologist. I'm not trying to protect Boeing at all. I think they do need to own up for these problems. But I think that there are a lot of people that help make this happen. And so focusing only on Boeing and only on their immunity that helped create the $2.5 billion settlement is also not the right way to do it. Yeah, I I agree with all that, and yet uh, you look at it and you say, you know, the um, the the FAA, yeah, I think is culpable by allowing Boeing uh, to sort of self-certify. Boeing clearly hid changes from the FAA and airlines, and that compromised safety. So, you know, on the one hand, somebody should be held responsible. Um, it looks to the families like Boeing paid two and a half billion dollars for a get out of jail free card. And I, I, you know, I think this is this is a both a really difficult case and a case that's going to impact aviation for generations to come. So what I do know is we will follow it closely and look forward to updating listeners about it and and talking more about this. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors. We want to thank our sponsor, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company. Seabury Securities' widely respected team has been advising aviation clients around the world for more than 25 years. 
Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And thanks to Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. We are delighted to welcome aviation attorney Mark Dombroff to Airlines Confidential. Mark concentrates his practice on the aviation and transportation industries, including litigation, regulatory matters, investigations, airport and aircraft security, and employment issues. Over four decades, he's handled numerous matters before the FAA, the NTSB, and other agencies, and issues involving the Departments of State, Justice, Treasury, Homeland Security, and TSA. He's tried dozens of jury and non-jury cases, many of them high-profile and impactful for defense and transportation. He's represented numerous airlines and been involved in many safety and emergency response issues. Mark, we're really looking forward to hearing from you. And let me start by just asking you how you got into aviation law. Well, first of all, thank you, Ben, and thank you, Scott, for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoy, as a listener, uh, the podcast. I think uh, it's really just great. In terms of how did I get into aviation law, um, it, it is sort of an interesting story. I was in my final year of law school, and law schools uh, did not have sort of the comprehensive placement programs that exist today. Uh, Law firms and government agencies didn't really recruit at the law school. So I ended up uh, taking a book out of the uh, American University Law School Library called Martindale and Hubble, which is a uh, sort of a compilation of all the law firms all over the United States and government agencies and so forth that the legal staffs. And uh, I went through the whole section for Washington, D.C., and prepared a list of roughly 300 addresses, law firms and government agencies. Uh, I wrote a cover letter. It was before the days of computers and word processing. I took it to a typing service. They prepared 300 letters using my addresses, uh, filling in the blanks. They prepared 300 envelopes. I picked them up. I stuffed them. I stamped them. Um, and sent them out. And over the course of the next 30 days, I got a lot of mail from from uh, all of these folks. And I got essentially 300 rejections uh, saying, thank you very much for your interest, but we really don't have any openings. One of them said, thank you very much for your interest. We don't have any openings, but if you find yourself in the vicinity of 800 Independence Avenue, feel free to stop by and visit with us. And that, as I think probably all of you know, is the headquarters of FAA. And I genuinely thought they meant it. I didn't realize and didn't give a thought to the fact that it was a form letter. So I actually called the lady who had signed the letter, and she was the head of the administrative operation in the then general counsel's office for the FAA. And I said, I'll be down there. I'd love to stop by. And Uh, She was very gracious, and I stopped by, and she came out to the reception area uh, of the chief counsel, now the chief counsel's office, and said, uh, nice to meet you. You are uh, the right person at the right time in the right place because somebody turned down a job. And she said to me, would you like that job? And that's how I got into aviation. (laughs) It's a great story. uh, It's not something I recommend to anybody, but uh, it it truly was. I was in the right place at the right time. And I ended up going to work for the general counsel's office. I started out in what was uh, known as uh, GCAGC10. That was the routing symbol, general law. And as soon as I got there, I started essentially lobbying to get into AGC40, GC40, which was the litigation division. Um, And I did get moved. And then I ultimately transferred over to the aviation unit of the Department of Justice. Well, that is an amazing story. And it shows how persistence and determination can work sometimes. (laughs) Let's start with Sully. 
and the amazing landing on the Hudson that happened. He's clearly a hero for what he did, but were the planets really aligned for all those customers by having him in the cockpit? Or do you think most pilots could have done the same thing? I asked that both out of interest, and I imagine that would have affected some of the litigation on this. I, you know, Ben, I think that's really a great question. And, and uh, I actually uh, assisted U.S. Airways uh, through that whole investigation and in the aftermath of it and dealing with the claims uh, from the passengers. And as a footnote, there was no litigation at all brought against U.S. Airways. Um, U.S. Airways reached out and, and actually reached resolutions with every passenger. Um, so there was never any litigation brought. I think that was a combination of the fact that uh, uh, there was such high praise for how the crew uh, managed the situation that nobody really wanted to go after the company. And I'd like to believe, I think we'd all like to believe that most pilots uh, could have or would deal with a similar situation with a similar outcome. Um I think that uh, by way of training, and at least in terms of equivalent levels of experience, I think most pilots are uh, would believe themselves and like to believe themselves capable of achieving the same outcome as uh, Sullenberger and Skiles, who was his first officer, achieved. I, I think a number of things. One, yeah, to a certain extent, the stars were aligned. The weather was good. The wind was calm. Uh, the airplane uh, came to rest at uh, uh, sort of the optimum location, if there is an optimum location in the middle of the Hudson River. The ferry boats and other boats got out there quickly. So I think there was an alignment of the stars. But at the same time, I think we saw an example of really outstanding crew resource management, CRM, uh, between the captain and the first officer. We saw decisive decision-making being made in the cockpit, and one where that decision-making stayed out in front of the events that were presenting themselves to this crew. Um, but again, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think I'd like to believe that this was a function of good training and good decision-making and good crew resource management. But at the same time, you know, I, I think that uh, that's attributable to the individuals that were in that cockpit. And obviously, as the pilot in command, that uh, really resides with Captain Sullenberger, with Sully. You know, Mark, that's that's so interesting. I'm a thousand hour private pilot, multi-engine, um, you know, nothing like a commercial pilot. But but even when you start taking lessons in a Cessna 152, uh, the first thing you you think about is, well, what are you going to do if the engine quits and, and find a field? And and so many pilots end up in trouble trying to turn back to the airport and they don't they don't have the airspeed or altitude to make that turn and get back to the airport. And I always thought the the key thing for for Sully was resisting the temptation to try and get back to LaGuardia or to go to Teterboro when the air traffic controller offered Teterboro. When you look around Manhattan, the only clear open field, if you will, um, is the river. Uh, and so that that made complete sense. But the but the real key, I thought, is exactly what I think you were saying was was the decision making to avoid the temptation to get to a runway because they wouldn't have made it. I, I Scott, I couldn't agree more. And and I think that the cockpit voice recorder, the transcript of the interaction and the decision making process in that cockpit really is an object lesson. And I would hope that all airlines use that cockpit voice recorder transcript during their training. I, I think what it demonstrates is a verbalized thought process. Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I remember very well is I think it was uh, Captain Sullenberger saying to Jeff Skiles, the FO, um, do you have any, any other ideas? And, and uh, Jeff saying, not really. 
And this was, you know, at the point where they had really been offered other airports, other alternatives, and, you know, they were factoring all this uh, into account in terms of what the course of action was. So I, I think you're, you're spot on, and it's kind of unusual that we've got such a verbalized thought process available mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's interesting. We've just had some safety incidents at, at JFK um, and elsewhere. Um, I, I'm curious, does, does the, do you think this work, the, the work in your business ever ends? Um, I know <laughs> safety has improved so much, but you're, you're probably still busy with it. Uh, you know, it's, I, I used to tell people I would wake up in the middle of the night to wonder, you know, are we going to have something to work on tomorrow or next week or whatever in the context of aviation. And, uh, the fact is I've been doing it as you commented during the opening, uh, description of my career, I've been doing it over four decades and I've never run out of work. Um, you know, the one constant factor that is present in aviation and frankly will always be present in aviation is the human element. And it frankly doesn't matter whether it's human element vis-a-vis computers or air traffic control or in the cockpit uh, or at the airports or wherever. And the human element uh, is always going to be prone no matter how much training uh, no matter how much experience to an error. Um, and at the same time, the technology, no matter how sophisticated, is also prone to failure. So at the end of the day, uh, it's highly unlikely that uh, you know our business is ever going to go away. I do remember the biggest probably liability area that had presented itself when I started my career was wake turbulence encounters uh, between larger aircraft and smaller aircraft uh, behind them. And we had any number of matters that we were defending uh, where the allegation was the air traffic controller, the, the spacing was too close or failed to give the warning regarding wake turbulence. And even at that time, there was no understanding of the different degrees of wake turbulence that may have been generated by a 757 versus uh, a DC-9. And procedures got changed. Spacing got changed. The warnings got changed. The industry got a better understanding of the magnitude and severity of wake turbulence from various aircraft. And these days, there's very, 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 very few wake turbulence encounters. So, you know, we still have obviously runway incursions. Um, and, you know, the one that we most recently heard about, I think, uh, uh, seems to be developing as, again, human error. So, you know, the short answer is uh, work in our business will likely never end, but the focus and the subject matter may change. Well, Mark, let's talk about another more deadly crash, which was the Colgan crash in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. This ended up resulting in some key regulatory changes, but the issue of pilot commuting was never really addressed, even though both the pilots in that flight had commuted. So I'm wondering, do you think that was a mistake and something that was missed in the regulatory review? I, I, I'll say I don't really think so. Um, I represented Colgan. I had represented Colgan before that accident and before they became part of Pinnacle and before they had the Q400 aircraft. And I, I think the two principal issues that you're referring to that, that addressed regulations um, and one of them was statutory and the other was regulatory. One was PREA, Pilot Record Improvement Act. And, you know, evidence came to light and was presented during that investigation that resulted in PREA changes, although it took a number of years. And 
The second was not a regulatory change, but a statutory change. And that was the 1500 hour requirement for the right seat. And that was politically driven and obviously has been the source of a lot of controversy since then, particularly as it relates to pilot shortages. You're absolutely right, Ben, that commuting uh, was a factual presence in that flight. Uh, Both pilots did commute, and there was quite a bit of evidence regarding the amount of rest and, and what they used with their rest time or what they did with their rest time. But I I don't really see, because what we're talking about is the issue of fatigue. And once again, if one listens to the cockpit voice recorder, 1,500 hours had nothing to do with the accident. Both pilots had well in excess of 1,500 hours. And I think that was more of a political reaction rather than a policy reaction. The fatigue issue... I think, again, goes back to commuting, but commuting of pilots is such a, I'll call it an integral part of the industry that, you know, I'm not aware that the FAA, other than addressing fatigue and making sure that pilots have sufficient rest time available, um, that there's much to be done um, other than hoping that pilots are going to act in a professional way and take advantage of those rest periods. The alternative is that the FAA, either regulatorily or the airlines, by way of their own rules, say that pilots must live, you know, literally live uh, within X distance and or may not commute further than Y distance. And Again, that's a that's a big issue. That, that's a big lifestyle issue, an industry issue, and I really haven't seen, by way of the commuting aspect of it, I have really haven't seen much in the way of action there. Was fatigue an element? Probably, in the Colgan accident. Um, did the pilots have ample opportunity to take advantage of appropriate rest periods? Yes. Did they? There's evidence to suggest that they may not have, um, but that really becomes an issue of pilot responsibility and professional responsibility. And boy, I'll tell you, you listen to that cockpit voice recorder, and I cannot literally think of another matter in which I've been involved in my career that had more what I would call fundamental errors and lack of communication and failure of CRM in the cockpit than on that flight. Hmm. And, and I'm curious, so, so did that result from lack of training? If, if it wasn't fatigue, what was it? I'll t- boy, I'll tell you, I'm not sure anybody has completely figured out what it resulted from. Um, you, you know, the, the reaction to the stall or the, the stall indications was you know, wrong by any measure, including sort of your first week or month of pilot training, you, you know, in terms of how you react to the onset of a stall, mm-hmm. right through to the airplane, the Q400 aircraft was trying to save itself with the stick pusher and trying to get itself out of a stall. And the pilots actually physically had to overcome the stick pusher. So the airplane's trying to save everybody on board and the pilots struggled and actually overcame it. So as intimately as involved as I was with that whole accident and, and, you know, the investigation, I can't even begin to think, you know, what was the fundamental cause? There just was no communication in terms of professional communications taking place in that cockpit. There was crew resource management, as we know it, CRM was not present. Neither one of them said to the other, let's just talk about this flight um, and and things relevant to this flight. Uh, So we can say it was fatigue, but we're never going to know. The errors were so fundamental, Scott. I just... um, That's why I say it's a singular event in my career. Interesting. 
Well, let's move from safety to reliability. Uh, airlines have argued that reliability is a joint effort of the airline, of air traffic control, of, of airports. Do you agree? Why, why are airlines often the only ones that get blamed? I, I think it's because the passenger, and that includes you and me and the flying public when we're, when we're part of that flying public, uh, our relationship is with the airline. You know, I fly this airline or I fly that airline or this is who's going to take me to California or whatever. And they're the forward facing. They're the most forward facing portion of the industry vis-a-vis the passenger and their customer. You know, the, the airport is a function of where I live. It's a function of schedules. What air, you know, what, what airline is going to, you know, have a flight at the time I want out of the airport. The air traffic control system is pretty much transparent to the passengers until something goes wrong, uh, whether it's, you know, delays or cancellations or computers go down. So I think, you know, my relationship, your relationship with aviation, if you're just a passenger and you don't do what you guys do or what I do, is with the airline. So, you know, that's the one that rightly or wrongly, and in many instances, it's not right, we look to and we sort of reflexively hold accountable, sometimes appropriately and oftentimes not appropriately. So I think it's a function of who we have the most contact with. Makes sense, Mark. Now, you're also a magician, and I would say you're the only magician that I actually know. So you wrote a book about how magic has helped your career. Can you tell us about this? It sounds I, fascinating. <laughs> I, uh, I, I should say by way of reciprocation, Ben, you are um, the only, uh, I'll, I'll say, game devotee, collector, fanatic that I know. So, um, and I mean that as a compliment. But I, I got intrigued with magic literally as a six or seven-year-old. And I was, you know, always, Mommy, Dad, watch this, watch this. You know, Grandma, watch this. And, and uh, they watched everything and, and uh, took me to the magic shops. I grew up on Long Island, and they took me to the magic shops in New York, uh, where my grandparents lived. And I would spend the night, and I'd go to the magic shop, and I'd save up my money and go to the magic shop. And then I ended up working at a magic shop in New York when I was in high school in my first year at college during vacations. And um, I have, it's been a lifelong interest and passion uh, of mine. And honestly, I, I wrote this book uh, during the summer of 2020. And I, I think it was, you know, sort of a lockdown type of activity in some respects. And I just decided that I would write it for myself. I just wrote it for me. Um, and when I ended up buying a copy, it was a bestseller because I wrote it for an audience of one and that audience of one, I actually bought a copy. So, uh, at least I'd have one paid purchaser. And I, I think back and I tribute whatever comfort I have being up in front of people, standing in a courtroom in front of a jury, standing in large front of a large group of people making presentations, I attributed to the fact that I was constantly saying to my parents and my friends putting on magic shows in the garage, um, watch this and being a magician. And it gave me levels of comfort and confidence to be in front of people. And that's played a very large role in whatever success I've achieved as a lawyer, whether it's uh, standing in front of large groups of people at uh, legal gatherings or trying lawsuits or making presentations to clients, or in many respects, talking with you. And I've always said to parents 
who have told me that their kids are interested in magic, uh, I've said you should really encourage them, no matter how painful it is to you, in terms of, mom, dad, watch this, watch this. And whether they continue it or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, the great benefit is it's going to give them confidence in terms of dealing with people. And whether it's doing magic or being, a, you know, in the theater group in school or whatever, uh, anything that's going to give them that confidence level, that comfort level, given the fact and that uh, I've read that the number one fear of most Americans is public speaking, getting up in front of people. Um, that's something to be encouraged. And in my case, it was magic, but it's become a, a lifelong passion and interest. To this day, I collect it. I perform for clients occasion. I don't do much in the way of children's birthday parties anymore, but I used to do an awful lot of them. <laughs> that's great. I, would, I just love that. So with the magic you do in the courtroom, um, what's the case you found most fascinating in your career? Wow. Um, I, I, I wish I could say one. I've, I've tried lots of cases to jury verdict. I've resolved lots of cases. Um, you know, the one thing that, that sort of has, I, I started thinking a lot about in the past uh, couple of weeks, really, is a case I had really before I left the Department of Justice, and then I continued to handle it after I left the Department of Justice uh, based upon a special appointment from the Attorney General. And that was, and, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners will remember this, and that was the shootdown of Korean Airline Flight 007 by the Soviet Union. And the, the 747 was shot down. Everybody on board perished. Uh, was shot down over the Kamchatka Peninsula. And the government, the U.S. government, got sued by the families of the passengers and along with Korean Airlines, obviously. And the claims were that the U.S. government, through the Air Force, uh, was aware of, of what was likely to occur before it occurred, that the airplane was off course and so forth, but failed to say anything. And the case was filed in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. And I was at, I was the Director of Aviation in Admiralty at the Department of Justice at that time and exercised my prerogative to handle it myself. And it involved substantial amounts of top secret information regarding what we knew, when we knew it, what our capabilities were, electronic intelligence gathering capabilities were. And I had to go through, even though I already had as a Department of Justice attorney clearances, I had to go through a number of FBI checks in order to get access to uh, compartmented information, because even though one has a top secret clearance, it doesn't clear you for compartmented information. And we've heard about that recently. We've heard about SCIFs, the secure facilities. And so I went through all these this clearance process with a whole other set of FBI checks. I remember getting phone calls from neighbors that I had when I was growing up asking me why the FBI was at their door. And my response was, they're just updating some clearances, so obviously tell them anything they want to know. And after I got all those clearances, I remember I was able to go out to the NSA facility outside of Washington here and got access to certain information. And I also remember that I was provided access to documents that were uh, top secret compartmented documents at the Department of Justice. And those documents would be brought over to the Department of Justice by couriers who had clearances to bring the documents, but they couldn't look at anything. It was all locked. And I would have to go to the SCIF 
at the Department of Justice, which was essentially a room in at the Department of Justice that was secure from any electronic uh, intelligence uh, interference. Um, and they would bring the documents into the room and then they would leave and wait outside while I reviewed the documents and I couldn't take notes. I couldn't get copies. And that, that whole thing came back to me with really vivid recollections given what's in the news these days. And, you know, I don't want to say it was, it certainly was a fascinating experience for me. And in, interestingly, the reason I continued to handle the case, even though I had left the Department of Justice and had joined a law firm, was that the decision was made uh, by the security, you know, the NSA folks and the Air Force folks and the Department of Justice folks, that they did not want to uh, uh, have somebody go through the whole clearance process again. And since I had all the clearances already, I was appointed as a special counsel to the United States. So I was able to continue handling that case even after I left the Department of Justice because I already had all the clearances. And that whole thing, you know, just the controversies that we're hearing today regarding, you know, classified documents being located at private residences or in garages or whatever has just made me think about actually how fascinating that whole exercise was. It, it really just has heightened and underlined that experience for me. Mark, that's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing it with us. Before we let you go, I want to remind our listeners that you also host an aviation symposium every year. Tell us about these, how long they've been going on, and about the one coming up. I, I, I'm really glad you raised it. Um, about, I'll say about 19 years ago, I uh, went to a training program uh, more because I was interested in sort of seeing the kind of training that was being offered by the NTSB at their academy out in Ashburn, Virginia. And I went to this training program out at the Ashburn facility for the NTSB at that time. And it became apparent to me sitting in that room that even 19 years ago, the airline industry in this country was very safe. The, the accident record, the catastrophic accident record and so forth had really sort of dropped off that we were making major improvements in, in airline safety. And it became sort of apparent to me that the result of that was that we had a much safer industry, but at the same time, there was a lot less experience in-house at airlines and operators regarding what really happens after an accident. Um, in large measure, it was a function of an emergency response drill or training, um, you know, sort of once a year or twice a year, an exercise and sort of checking the boxes and so forth. So we started a symposium. It started as a one-day training program. And uh, we did it, I think, at our office at that time. And this was 18 years ago, we uh, started it. And it was in February, 18 years ago. And I expected we'd have about 20 people and we could accommodate them in our, in our conference room. The first year we ended up having 40 people. It lasted about a day. And the whole approach was an airplane is down, what really happens after an accident? And we talked about the accident investigation and civil litigation and the media issues and the employee issues and the financial market shareholder owner issues and the criminal issues, even though we don't criminalize aviation accidents in this country, there's always some prosecutor looking at whatever the event is. In the last in we we now in February February seventh through 9th is our eighteenth aviation symposium. Uh, we've advertised it at the seventeenth 
as the 17th because, frankly, I miscounted. It's our 18th symposium. The last two years we've gone virtual. We uh, are expecting about four to 500 registrants. We don't charge anybody anything. It's about 90, well, it's almost 100% aviation industry, whether it's airlines, cargo operators, charter operators, insurers, brokers. It's sort of the full spectrum. Uh, FAA is there, NTSB attends. Most of the consultants we have are former members of one of those categories, whether it's the industry, the airlines, or the, the, uh, the government. It's moderated panels, uh, no talking heads, no speeches, uh, no papers. It's a moderated panel format. Um, we've gone from one day and 40 people to uh, welcome back, in this case, cocktail party uh, on Tuesday, February 7th, uh, to a full day of moderated panels on February 8th, and a half day of moderated panels on February 9th. The subjects are going to include basically everything from that first phone call the airline gets to the fact that the event has occurred right through to the final report being issued by the NTSB, as well as petitions for reconsideration and everything in between. Um, then we've got a panel on the 1,500-hour issue, quality versus quantity. We have a panel on uh, criminalization, um, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. Uh, we have a panel on um, accidents and events outside the United States, trying to educate operators who fly outside the United States. A panel on tabletop drills and exercises, what the parameters should be, who should attend, how to make them more effective. And there's also a meeting of the Aviation Emergency Response Organization that takes place before our Welcome Back cocktail party. And I understand that A4A is going to have a meeting of its members since they're all going to be attending. Anybody that's in the industry that's interested in attending, go to the Fox Rothschild website and go to the Aviation tab and uh, you can feel free to register. As I said, we don't charge anybody anything. Uh, we really present it. And by the way, we don't accept sponsorships because we really have presented this over the course of the last years as a true, we believe, a true service to the industry. So I invite your listeners to join us. Again. So, Mark, thank you so much. Um, thank you for taking us into the magic of investigations and litigation and regulation. Uh, it, it's always reassuring to me and I think to any travelers uh, to know how much care and concern goes into important aviation issues. And you've been so central to that. Thank you for your service. And, and really, uh, thank you for your fascinating insights today. Um, great to have you with us. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Mark Dombroff for a really exciting and truly magical discussion. <laughs> Our sponsors make Airlines Confidential possible, and we're very grateful for their support. We want to thank our sponsor, Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. Ben, our first question comes this week from Jose in Atlanta. And before we get to that, I just want to say, as the new kid on the podcast, I have been so impressed with the questions from our listeners um, and, and really have enjoyed uh, the issues that we've explored through the questions. Um, so keep the questions coming. 
and uh, you can you can send them to us right from the website, and we look forward to many more. But here's Jose's question: Before the pandemic, Delta had seven flights a day between Atlanta and Tallahassee, mostly on regional jets. Now it's only four flights, but all mainline. Delta also used to have multiple flights a day from Green Bay and Appleton, Wisconsin to Atlanta on regional jets. Now it's one time a day on mainline. Is this because of the pilot shortage or a broader strategy to shift to larger jets? In Tallahassee, Green Bay, and Appleton, Delta is the only network carrier flying mainline into these airports. What's the effect of Delta sacrificing frequency, something high-paying business travelers value greatly? Jose also asks, before COVID, Scott Kirby said the A220 was not cost-effective because you're paying mainline wages to fly something not much larger than a 76-seat regional jet. And instead, Kirby bet on the CRJ 550. If it's hard to get regional jet pilots, do you think he regrets adding more 50-seat RJs to the fleet? What's your take on all this, Ben and Scott? Ben, we talked last week about the captain shortage at regionals and the idea of moving more regional flying to mainline carriers. But Delta has been replacing regionals with mainline jets and fewer frequencies for several years. I think Delta likes having the control of the operation, and Delta thinks customers prefer mainline, even business travelers. What do you think? I agree with you, Scott, and I think it's a good strategy of Delta. You know, the biggest reason this is happening is part because of that and part because it's just more expensive to buy the capacity from regional carriers now that their costs have risen to as high as they have, largely from the pilot shortage and the need to pay pilots more. So I think this trend that Delta's has been doing, you'll see at other carriers when United made their big 270 airplane order. They talked about those jets replacing a lot of regional flying. And with that, you can assume probably a reduction in frequency compared to what the regional jets do. So I think that is the way of the future. Nobody thinks about business revenue better than Delta, and nobody produces business revenue better than Delta. So if Delta's making these changes, I'm sure they're thinking about what the effect on the business traveler is, and they understand those markets well enough to know that they're still serving the business customer. Now, when it comes to Scott Kirby's comments on the 220, I do think he probably thinks in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have bet so much on the smaller regional jets had he known the cost of that flying was going to become so expensive, he probably would rather have the A220 right now. The A220 is a great airplane. It's the most recently designed mid-sized airplane. The Airbus A320 family is 30 or 40 years old in terms of initial design. The 737, 50 years old in terms of initial design, right? And the 220 is is the plane that Boeing or Airbus would have built had they designed a plane from scratch. So everybody's going to want that plane, including United Airlines, especially now that the cost of regional airline feed is moving up. Boy, I hope so, Ben, because the A220 really is a comfortable airplane for passengers. And I, I wrote, wrote stories about it when airlines weren't buying it, um, that uh, uh, somebody was actually making a comfortable airplane and airlines didn't want it. Um, I, I hope it, it does gain traction. And I do think it's fascinating. I, I'm sure it doesn't work financially if you think of it in terms of putting 737 wages in, into that cockpit. Um, but if you think of it as putting uh, the equivalent of what today are regional jet wages, and, and that becomes a much more attractive workplace, a uh, place to hire on for young pilots uh, who would rather get on the Delta seniority list with an earlier date um, than have to go to a regional airline for several years. 
The, the having the A220 may give Delta an advantage in several ways. So another fascinating development to watch. And another question, Ben, and more comment on the Wall Street Journal airline rankings from our mutual friend, David Grizzle, or David in Shenandoah Valley, as he says. David commented that we had, quote, great discussion of on-time performance and the passenger impact of different airline delays. There is an additional element of the passenger experience you did not touch on. You were still talking about airline or airplane delay statistics. Passenger delay experience can be very different depending on how many cancellations and misconnections result from a particular airline delay profile. For example, two airlines could be Ben's hypothetical carrier, which runs every flight 15 minutes late. However, if one of them carries a large percentage of connecting passengers and that carrier operates a tight hub with short connecting times, that airline could generate a vastly larger percentage of disgruntled misconnecting passengers than any other airline with exactly the same airplane on time percentages, but a small percentage of connecting passengers with short connect times. This was laid out quite brilliantly in a 2015 Dartmouth MIT study of the effects of the 2010 tarmac delay rule. But don't expect to see passenger delay statistics reported anytime soon. DOT has absolutely no visibility into that. David Grizzle has done some amazing things in his career, including being the chief operating officer of the FAA and leading the government's rebuilding of Afghanistan for 14 months. I, for one, would love to see him push the government to calculate passenger delay rather than airplane delay. That would really give us an idea of what travel is like and how it's changing. I really thank David for this intelligent comment. And he's absolutely right about needing to have metrics that affect people's lives, not machines' lives. And this idea that the DOT on time statistic gives you as an individual your likelihood of arriving on time is just wrong for the reasons I outlined with the silly every flight 50 minutes late kind of airline story I gave last week. But also what David points out, if you're connecting, that can make a huge difference. Also, if you misconnect on a flight, but the flight you end up taking is on time, that flight shows on time. So it says you took an on-time flight into your final destination, even though you might be four hours late. That's David's point there. So I agree. It would be great. It concerns me that David, who worked in the FAA for a number of years, would make such an emphatic statement that DOT has absolutely no visibility into customers. That's a very damning kind of statement. And I really hope that that doesn't stop an effort to do exactly what he's suggesting. Yeah. And I don't think this is impossible to do. I think it's simply a matter of the government requiring airlines uh, to uh, turn over some passenger uh, data. The airlines certainly know what happens to their passengers. Um, so, uh, why not report it? Now, we could we could have a long discussion, Ben, about uh, what airlines are required to report. It, it is like no other industry. There's a lot of reporting that I think is simply a carryover of the regulated days. But there is so much interest in airline service, uh, and the government does play uh, such a major role uh, that I could certainly see Congress um, imposing a requirement or the DOT someday requiring airlines to turn over passenger data as well as aircraft data. I hope you're right, Scott. As you probably know, airlines file these data on forms and in databases that were designed when the industry was regulated. And so one of the things I think David was 
sort of frustratingly referring to in his note is that the DOT has just done it like this forever and trying to get them to change the way they do it might suggest they've been doing it wrong and so maybe they won't do it. But I think you're right. Airlines do know what's happening to customers. So why not add that to what they're already collecting? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I, I push very hard in, in my career to include regional airline performance with the mainline performance. Um, you know, it used to all be separated out and airlines would um, perhaps quite legitimately, but airlines would often blame the misconnected bag on the regional partner. Um, and so that that misconnected bag didn't show up in a mainline carrier's data now it does, and that gives the consumer much better visibility into what's really going on. Uh, so I hope we can continue progress in aviation data and make it more useful for travelers. Lots of things to follow up on from this week's show, Scott. But that's it for this week in Airlines Confidential. Hopefully, you'll all be back next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.